This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 214. And the quote of the day is, it's so essential to surround yourself with individuals who are already where you want to be. Iron sharpens iron. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I hope you're doing well. Hope everything is groovy on your end. And if you're just tuning in for the first time, or maybe this is your third or fourth time, there's 213 other of these episodes at drummersresource.com, and only the latest 50 or so are on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play. So if you want more, head over to drummersresource.com. You can also search in the top right-hand side of the website to find the other episodes, search for your favorite artists. And while you're there, sign up for the email list, and I will send you a copy of my ebook, Stick Control Variations, and you can get that 100% free just by signing up for the mailing list and it'll help you improve your chops, your speed, your independence. Plus you'll be on the mailing list and you'll, you'll be up to date with all the stuff that's going on with drummers resource. So that's the, uh, that's the, that's the spiel. If you're, if you're just tuning in for those of you who've been listening to it, to it for a while, been listening to the podcast for a while. I got to ask, have you left a rating and review? If you haven't, please do so over at iTunes, leave a rating review that helps the podcast show up higher in the search results and gets more notoriety and fame for me. And from there I get, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm kidding, but please just leave a rating and review. I would appreciate it. And now let's get into this, this conversation today. And it's with the great Lenny White and I don't think that Lenny needs any type of introduction, but just to just to preface it a little bit, the dude played on Bitches Brew, and that to me is introduction enough. He was also part of Retur- Chick Corea's Return to Forever and a bunch of other amazing projects that he's worked on, and he tells some awesome stories in how all of that came to be and a lot more. So I won't waste any more time talking. Let's get into it with the legendary Lenny White. Lenny White, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. It's uh, it's great to have you. I've been, you know, I've listened to you on record uh, numerous, numerous times, as I know that everyone out there has, and you've played on a slew of different records, and we're going to get get all into that. Uh, but firstly, yeah, just one, thank you for being a part of this. And two, I want to build, I we don't need to go through your whole entire history uh, of you know growing up and all those things, but I'm interested to know just sort of how you got into playing and and what was what sort of was the spark that got you started. Uh, you know, it's kind of nebulous, but I you know I wanted to play trumpet. Uh, you know, I was a big Miles Davis fan um, as a kid, and I don't I'm not sure what uh, made me start to uh, aspire to play drums. But, you know, there's this great symbiotic relationship between trumpet and drums anyway. Uh, but I started to get into drums, and uh, it's been that way ever since. And how old were you when you started playing? Fourteen. Oh, so you were actually, you started a little later then. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, a lot of times I get, you know, I started at three, or I 
I can't remember not playing drums and then there's people starting their in their teens. There's usually not a lot of like, oh, I started when I was seven, eight, nine. Yeah, I started late. I mean, uh, uh, I was into art. I was into like, you know, drawing and stuff like that. But um, music was always played around my house. Uh, with, you know, my mom and dad loved music and they played records. They were not musicians. But uh, music was always played around the house. So like it was, you know, part of the soundtrack of my early life. And uh, I just got into uh, playing drums. Hmm. And so did it start at, at school or was there cats in the neighborhood who were playing? No, no, no. It started at home. Uh, when I went to school, um, they wanted me to play tuba. And I said, no, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and uh, so they said, well, like, uh, if you play drums, you have to have two years of experience. So I lied and told them that I had two years of experience, and I uh, started to play drums. <laughs> How'd you play that so off? I felt confident enough to be able to, to play. And the, the other drummer... Um, I told him I really didn't read music. He said, don't worry about it. I could get you through it. And, you know, and so I got through it. Nice. I mean, it was, it was pretty deep because um, when I got into high school, I got into the orchestra and I played timpani. And I had no clue about the tuning or whatever of uh, the timpanis, you know, like in the drums that uh, the timpanis that we had were uh, B flat. Mm -hmm. and, and uh, C. And um, I looked at the, the notes on the page and I said, okay, I'm going to make a methodology with this. I'm going to have the big drum be the stem, the note with the stem going down and the small drum with the note with the stem going up. And I played through three years of high school like that. And the instructor never questioned what I played. Really? Yeah, but how, I don't even know how that works. Hey, I don't know. Whatever, <laughs> whatever works, it worked, works. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> let's not let's not ask questions. That's right. I mean, <laughs> it worked, so you know that was it. And you know, the fact for for, for me, um, I've always processed music a little differently than normal. I mean, uh, when I listen to when I listen to records jazz records or whatever, I listened to the whole sound. It wasn't necessarily just the drums, but the drums and how they related to the whole sound of the whole uh, record. And, you know, um, in terms of tuning, in terms of how the drums sit in the music, I, I heard it in its, com you know, like a complete thing. Right. I, I, I got to be able to isolate it later on, but like I, I heard like the whole thing. I heard everything at the same time and it sounded like a, a, a sound that included all the instruments. I don't know if I'm explaining it no, right. No, no, no. That, that makes sense to me. It's sort right. of, it's sort of, uh, it, you know, maybe if I could equate it to going to another country and there's a bunch of people talking and it just, you just hear everything. You don't hear individual conversations. You just sort of hear everything going on at once. Uh, yeah, that's how I'm here. That's how I'm thinking in my head. But it, you know, musically, it makes sense to you, though. 
Yeah, I mean, later on, I was able to isolate and, you know, pick drums out, pick the bass out, pick the piano out, and see that all those different parts came to be what I heard as one. Mm -hmm. You know, but I could isolate. I mean, sometimes in my teaching now, um, that's what I do. I talk to students and I emphasize that they need to isolate to be able to hear uh, what the left hand is doing as opposed to what the right foot's doing. Mm-hmm. And that's, what, that's the way you read. You read drum music and it's, you know, right, left, 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 right, right, whatever. And a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, students and young drummers, they all play a beat, but not isolate the parts so that, like, each individual part has its own space, and that's how the beat is defined, and that's what makes a beat swing or not. You mm-hmm. know? Almost like each each limb could stand on its own. Yes. Well, that's exactly the case. And when you listen to somebody that's playing a beat and it doesn't sound right, or somebody who's swinging and it's not swinging, it's because there's one part of the whole total beat that's not lining up right. Or maybe it's two. They're not lining up right. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think there's an importance to hear both to say, okay, I need to be able to separate this. I need to be able to hear what my right hand's doing, my left foot's doing, but then also be able to hear like you did in the beginning, hear, hear the whole band as one thing, as an orchestra, as as an uh, you know an entire unit or or you're playing as as an entire thing yeah well see the the thing about musicians really playing which is different today because like a lot of the music is processed and and it's machines but what is really special is that there's there are conversations between the musicians that are playing and when you're able to be able to listen to what it is that you do and make it relate to what someone else is saying. That really makes the music sound right, whether it's a groove, whether it's swinging or whatever. So you have these conversations. With the, there's a conversation between the drummer and the piano player. There's a conversation between the bass player and the drummer. And like all that's right, and it's a great conversation, the music swings or the music grooves. Mm-hmm. Today, you get a drum machine, and you quantize the drum machine. You quantize the bass synth, and it locks up. Mm-hmm. But it's not really a, a, a human feel, right? And so, it's very important that you, whatever whatever uh, instrument that you play, that you are able to isolate what it is that you're doing. And also make it work within the context of what everybody else is playing. Right. So, yeah, that's important to be able to do that. So do you think that over the years there will be sort of an evolution to where if at once everything up and down the line is quantized, always, and someone puts on you know a Miles Davis record, it sounds out of time or it doesn't feel right mm-hmm. anymore? No, I don't think that'll happen. No? No, because, you see, uh, 
music is a is a personalized thing. Um, what people get, different people get different things from music, and I, I I'm not sure we will get to a point where. I mean, we're at a point now where everything is lined up and pop music sounds perfect. There's nobody singing out of tune. There's, there's no, no, nothing's out of sync. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, it's going to go back to where there is some, some blemishes within the music because it's a it's a human feel. I think it's got to go back to that. Yeah. Um, because, I hope so. You know, well, well, there the, are the exceptions to, to all the rules. I mean, they are still humans making music. I mean, sometimes it's kind of hard to find that, but I mean, uh, there are still, I mean, you know, you listen to uh, a Miles Davis record. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you listen to the to, to the, the great quintet, or listen to the second quintet, I mean that, that for me that's perfection. And all those little flaws and uh, are things that sound not perfect are what make that music perfect for me. Mm-hmm. So when I hear something that is manufactured or lined up. Uh, I know that's what people expect today, but you know, I don't get the same emotion or content. I, you know, like when you listen to uh, a Rolling Stones record, I mean, you know, there's a certain emotional content that you get because it sounds the way it sounds, you know, mm-hmm. and things are not totally lined up. So, uh, Again, it's a personal experience. I mean, like, uh, uh, I don't think it will get to a point where all the music that you hear will be, you know, manufactured by machines and stuff like that where it's lined up. I don't think it'll, it'll get to that. I mean, I think the point that it's at now is that's it. It's right. got to go back from this point. And, you know, sometimes I think it's, you know, history always repeats itself. So I feel like what's going on now, a lot of it is sort of like, it's almost like disco. Uh, but back then there was live the, they were playing disco live Mm -hmm. versus Mm -hmm. what it is now. And it it seems squared up to me. I mean, I heard, I heard a song the other day. It was a four minute song or three minute song and it had four words and it just repeated (laughs) over and over again. Then it went to the chorus and it was the same words, (laughs) but they just changed like the computer programming on it and had a girl singing a higher pitch behind it. And then it went back to the verse, which was the same four words again. And it just went for three minutes. And part of me was like, there's disco songs that do that. And like some, and some go-go music that does that. Yeah. Yeah. But they were playing live and there's, <laughs> you know, it's like if even, you know, even if you listen to say uh sex machine, you know, right. There's there's parts of that song, you know, that just never move. For yeah, but, but it's grooving. It's I mean, grooving its ass. I was, it, it, you know, the emotional content that you get uh, when you know that someone is playing something and, and they're emoting whatever emotion. 
that they feel at the time playing that you get it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't, I don't know if I could, if I get the same thing uh, from a machine. Now, what I get from the, that music that's made with a machine, I might groove with it and I might, but somehow you know, and you feel some, a, a different emotional content when you know someone's playing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's why the music, the pop music of the, 60s and early 70s was great because you had uh, musicians, great musicians, playing music, taking chances. And, you know, we don't have that today in, in pop music. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think that it's become a producer-oriented um, um, industry and any industry manufactures product and I think that's what's happening is the product's been manufactured music has become something that's a secondary thing and music is used to sell things mm-hmm. and uh, versus being just what it is well a lot the of the emo- you're right, a lot of the emotional content is taken out uh, it's about performance and being an entertainer as opposed to being a musician. And, you know, the fact is, is like, if you listen to the music, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost perfect, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it's like a boutique thing as opposed to it being something that is uh, unique to the individual, you know? Um, right. We don't have a whole lot of bands, you know, you have a whole lot of producers making music for big name stars, but you don't have a lot of bands. Right. So, I mean, no, no, no. Don't get me wrong here, because I know everybody's going to call me to the cop and say, oh, man, this is this is always going to be bands. There's always going to be music. But the fact is, there's the exception to the rule. What happens now is more or less entertainers are taking have taken over the industry as opposed to bands of course they're bands right but the norm is the top uh um artists in the industry uh just that they're artists they're not they're not bands Mm -hmm. saying so that's that that's what i mean by that of course i'm not saying that there are no bands and nobody no bands are making music i'm not saying that right so. And so, I mean, do you think it, it's a matter of just saying, okay, we need sort of maybe somebody who's good looking or someone who, you know, who can perform really well. And then we'll just find some guys and girls to play behind them. And they're the, they'll just be the spotlight because, you know, now it seems like you said, there's, there's not a lot of bands. And because I guess the focus is just on that, on the look and the entertainment factor. Yeah. You got to understand for me, you know, like, I, I grew up playing in bands and the bands that I was in became influential bands and influential bands at the time that we existed listened to us and we listened to them. I mean, mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, you know, when I was playing with Return to Forever, uh, I was listening to Led Zeppelin and I found out that John Bonham was listening to me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, the, the, and, and 
that aspect of music bands playing music, humans playing in bands influenced the music, and that's why we that's some of the greatest music ever. Right. And we and we need to go back to that type of situation where musicians are making music as opposed to producers making music. Mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself a purist or are there things that you hear now that you enjoy that maybe quantize and maybe made, you know, not with a band, but in a studio, sort of in a factory? And mm, Well, you see, um, it was very uh, important for me to get uh, to, to be as good as I can be playing music so I could actually wear or, or, or have the title of being a musician. For me to call myself a musician, I had to get to a level that was a great level so that I could be legitimate to call myself a musician. Mm-hmm. The same way in being a producer, I had to get to a level that I could have success and say that I'm a, pro- a producer. So I listen to all kinds of music, and I have uh, uh, I like all kinds of things, and and you know I I'm not musically myopic, so I could listen to something that's a quantized piece and say I like that, mm-hmm. but but at heart I'm a musician. Sure, sure, that makes I mean that makes I, total sense. I will always, you know enjoy something that is made by a musician uh, or played by a musician as opposed to it being something that was quantized by a producer. I do both things. But the fact of the matter is I just don't like the, the, the disparity of, of produced um, entertainers as opposed to musicians. I think that musicians need to take back the music industry because mm-hmm. that's when the, that's when the music business was, was a great business. Musicians had control over it. You know, like you had bands, you had classic records played by musicians. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. And now the fact is like what something is, uh, is a classic is because it sells a lot of records as opposed to it being music, having musical content that is lasting or having, having performances by musicians that are stellar performances. Mm -hmm. You know, DJs now can go to Vegas and make millions of dollars as opposed opposed to musicians. Mm -hmm. Which is a staggering yeah. Thing. And the thing that always boggles my mind, and not to belabor this point, and we'll move on, but I don't understand how years ago no one used auto-tune or perfected everything, and all of these great singers sounded amazing, and now all of the singers use, not all, but a, a very large percentage of them use auto-tune, and I always think, like, well, what? where are the people who can sing now? There's not, not, I mean, the people who can sing aren't extinct. No, that's true. You know, so where, like, where did they go? (laughs) They just can't get work. (laughs) Right. Or maybe they're not good looking enough or they're not. Well, yeah. I mean, see, these are all things that, you know, um, 
we can talk and debate about. But yeah. but this is why I said that, you know, any industry manufactures product. You have the auto industry, they manufacture cars, there's great cars, but they put up, they get on an assembly lining and robots make cars. Remember, you know, early on there were people on these assembly lines that really put care and effort into making uh, a car. But now they have robots that do that. And while we all love the cars that come off the assembly line, no matter how, you know, uh, whether it's a, a Hyundai or a Mercedes, but the fact is, it's manufactured. You know, the craftsmanship that goes into making uh, a car, remember the craftsmanship that went into making a great song. Mm. You know, and, but now, because industries want to sell product and they want to have maximum uh, uh, sales, they found out it's easier to get to make things uh, by manufacturing them than actually, you know, spending the time and the effort and care and um, getting something that's special. It's a really interesting way of looking at it. Never looked at it like that. It's sort of, you know, pop, or, you know, music now is like the Kia of the audio industry or something. I yeah, don't know. I mean, you know, music is so strong and, and, and so powerful that, you know, it's used as a platform uh, to communicate to people. That's why it's used to sell things. That's why uh, all TV has nothing but, you know, musical commercials. And they they get a certain genre of music that is really popular today. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they use it to sell things. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's very interesting because if you would if you were to listen to TV or watch watch TV, excuse me, I mean that's a uh, misnomer because you watch and you listen to TV. But like, if you watch TV and you hear the music that's being used to sell things, most of the things that they sell are low line things and not high end things. So if you were to take, let's say you were going to sell a car like a, a Maserati mm -hmm. and, and you were to use some jazz behind it, then it would be, oh, wow. This is interesting. But, you know, I don't think that the, the manufacturers of the product would want to do that because they want to reach as many people as they can. They don't want to actually... Uh, have something that uh, is unique. They want to have something that everybody can get into. So like they would, Maserati, if Maserati made, well, they did make a low-line car. And so they're not using, I mean, they, they would use, you know, some dance music or hip-hop music or whatever that's popular now to sell it. They wouldn't use classical music or jazz. Oh, no, no, we can't do that. No, we need to reach the most people we can reach, the maximum we can reach. So right. we, we have to use, you know, things that everybody can get into, you know. I think if you look at, you know, if you look like like a, at a Honda commercial, it's, 
pop or it's some sort of like upbeat like dance but yeah. but i think i think though if you look at like a like a high end mercedes like you know maybe like an s class or something like that they're not going to have pop music though i think they are going to have that I, you know the the either jazz or classical or something like that because it raises the level of prestige and they know that they're catering to a smaller market. Nick, do me a favor. Next time you watch a Mercedes commercial and you find that, send it to me. Okay, that has high end music like that. Okay, I'll look. Okay, <laughs> sure. I mean, I would agree with you, but that's not the the norm. That's not what's happening now. That's that's what I'm saying. Right. Hmm. I'm yeah. gonna. I'll, I'll try to find some. Yeah. Sure. This session is brought to you by my good friends at DW Drums. And do yourself a favor, check out what they got going on at DWDrums.com. And if you're in L.A., go up to the factory. It's 45 minutes north of of L.A. in Oxnard. And you can walk through the factory, see how they make their drums. But they also are running, you know, they're making Gretsch now. And they have LP and all of these other great brands underneath one umbrella. And they're just a great company. They're a great group of people. And I can't say enough about them enough good things about them, I should say. So you can learn all about them at dwdrums.com. Also, if you ever have an issue with your stick sliding out of your hands, you may want to check out Promark's new Active Grip technology. They just put it on the new Rich Redmond stick, the new Rich Redmond signature stick, I should say, and the new Mike Portnoy signature stick. And this Active Grip technology gets tackier as your hands heat up, so it creates you know a non-slip surface on the stick, which is really cool. They just came out with this, and you can learn all about the Active Grip technology, Mike Portnoy's new stick, and Rich Redmond's new stick at Promark.com. Now, let's get back into it with the one and only Lenny White. Well, speaking of high-end music, uh, you have... You've played on uh, a ton of high-end records and have played in a bunch of high-end bands. I want to talk. Uh, I want to talk about Return to Forever. I want to talk about Bitches Brew. I want to talk about the stuff that you have going on uh, currently. Um, so let let's walk down the road a little bit of of how Return to Forever came together and sort of how that how that transition went from. I know this is a long road, but we started, you know, you start playing when you're 14 and you're in New York City and you're, you're coming up. How does that lead to you starting this band? <laughs> okay. I'm going to try to capsulize this in about... In 30, you have 30 <laughs> seconds or less. <laughs> okay. You have to speak really, just speak slow and I'll speed it up in, in no, post. No, 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 it's cool. I mean, you know, I got, I got possessed by music. Mm-hmm. And hold, let me be, before and and I apologize for cutting you off. The reason why I ask this is because I there's always a disconnect with okay, I'm 16 years old and I'm a drummer. How do I go from there to you know playing professionally and and getting on the same bandstand as maybe some of my idols or just people who are playing at a much higher level? And that's why I asked this question sure. because. I, I'd love to paint that picture. So I apologize for interrupting you. No problem. Okay, so here, here it is. I started playing when I was about 14. And uh, my my mom and dad got me a Kent drum set. 
And I got into, you got to understand, they've been playing music around the house forever. So, like, I got into it and I started to play. And then, like, you know, um, I wanted to advance, so I needed to get a better drum kit. So uh, we had a friend in the family who uh, knew uh, a drum instructor who had a drum kit that he was selling. So it was a premier drum kit. So uh, my dad brought that for me. So now that I have like really like a professional drum kit, then I really got into it. I mean, I became possessed by the music. I would go to school and I would come home and I would practice every day. And, you know, in the winter months, like, you know, we had a basement where I lived in Queens and there was no heat down there. So what I would do is I would go put my sticks in the oven, go downstairs, I mean, heat them up and I'd go downstairs and practice as long as I could. I would have to, it, it was, I was possessed, I had to practice every day. Mm-hmm. So uh, at about 15, uh, you know, some kids in the neighborhood, we got together, he had a band and we played our first professional gig. We played a gig at um, a benefit for one of the guys, uh, one guy's father was a policeman, so like he had a benefit, and we played at the benefit. So we got paid. So that was my first professional gig. <clears throat> so by now, I'm really into listening to music. I'm really listening to uh, my dad's jazz records and things. And uh, I got into uh, a competition uh, here in, in New York. Uh, this is 19, I think, 66 or whatever. Um, called, it was a group called uh, Jazz Interactions, and they had uh, a competition for young musicians. <clears throat> and, excuse me, and uh, the competition, just to let you know, um, if you won, you'd, you'd get a, a night at the village gate. So mm. there were different, different bands that were put together. So uh, some of the people that were in that competition in 1966, there's a group called the Jazz Samaritans that had Billy Cobham, George Cables, Clint Houston, and it was a uh, band uh, that Larry Coryell had with Jim Pepper, um, <coughs> Steve Grossman, saxophone player, he had a band. And uh, uh, who else was in that competition? Uh, uh, Weldon Irvine had a band that had Benny Maupin in it. So these are, you know, great young talents here in New York City. And uh, the band, uh, the Jazz Americans won with Billy Cobham, <clears throat> excuse me, Billy Cobham in it and George Cables. And so they had their night at the uh, uh, Village Gate. And then Billy got the opportunity to play with Horace Silver, so he left the band. Mm, I love Horace Silver. So they called me to be the drummer, and Steve Grossman uh, became saxophone player in the band, along with George Cables and Clint Houston. How old, so, so how old was Billy at the time? Is he younger than you or <clears throat> older than you? Oh, no, he's older than me. Okay. Uh, Billy's in his 70s. Oh, uh, yeah. I just interviewed him, too. I should have known that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so now we're, we're out playing and, you know, like, you know, we're trying to record on our own and uh, things start to happen. And I got a call to play with Jackie McLean. 
So, uh, and this band had uh, Harold Mayburn on piano, Scotty Holt on bass, Woody Shaw on trumpet, and Jackie McLean. And so, now this is my real big, big, you know, in playing with somebody that I listened to on records and mm-hmm. stuff. And so I played with Jackie for a while, but maybe about a year. I'm still going to school at this time. And, you know, everybody says that, oh, by, by, oh excuse me, before this, I, I hear a record um, called Seven Steps to Heaven, Miles Davis record. And on that record, the guy who's playing drums is 17 years old. And immediately I say, are you kidding me? This is what I have to be able to do. Who, that's who was my it? guy, Tony Williams. <laughs> I said, that's my guy. This is, this is it. I, I, you know, this is my focus now. So I play with Jackie McLean and everybody says, oh, well, you know, look, Tony Williams played with Jackie McLean and then he went on and played with Miles Davis. Jack DeJanette played with Jackie McLean. Then he went on to play with Miles Davis. So everybody's coming to me saying, man, you're going to play with Miles now. So this is in my head. I'm getting this in my head. So I'm playing now. And that's, yeah, as I said, this is, I'm 17. And I'm playing. And I'm like, I'm going, okay, right. This is what I got to do. I became a mission of mine to do this. So then two years later, I get a call to go. I'm actually, I played a gig. I played a gig with Rashid Ali and Benny Maupin was on the gig. It was like, you know, kind of free improvising gig. And there's a trumpet player that's on the record. I mean, that's on the date. And he says, man, has Miles ever heard you play? I said, no. He said, man, I'm going to tell, tell him. I said, yeah, right, right. You know, I'm telling him he's jiving or whatever. Right. So sure enough, he calls, he talks to Miles and I get a phone call. Miles says, come to my house uh, to rehearse uh, for a record date and just bring your snare drum and the cymbal. And so there's Dijonette, Chick, uh, Dave Holland, Wayne, and Miles, and myself. And we go and we practice. We rehearse, excuse me. We rehearse just the first part of Bitches Group. Diddle, 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 and he says, okay, be at Columbia Studios tomorrow at 10 o'clock. So I'm freaking out, man. <laughs> you don't understand. Like, I have... I'm freaking out when you telling me the story. <laughs> I have never made a record. I mean, now, now don't get me wrong. I, I, I made, like, these little demos with uh, with the band uh, Jazz Samaritans. Right. So, and I've been playing, you know, uh, jam sessions and stuff around Queens. So, like, you know... So I go to uh, 52nd Street Studios and, you know, I'm, I'm there. The session starts at 10. I'm there at 9.30. The cleaning lady let me in, okay, because there's nobody there. So I come in and I'm setting up my stuff. And then everybody starts to come in and, and, you know, Jack comes in. And I had played with Jack before because I had played, and I'm playing with Jackie McLean. Jack came and sat in and played melodica. Mm. So I knew Jack. So we, you know. Anyway, I go and I'm sitting up and I'm starting to, you know, practice up and play. And so Miles comes in and over the talk back, he says, hey, Jack. Jack says, yeah, hey, Miles. What's up? He said, 
tell the young drummer to shut up. <laughs> so, so I never even met him before. I'm freaking out, man. And so for the next three days, uh, in August of 1969, we record Bitches Group. Now, just to let you know, I mean, like, at 17, I hear this record with Miles Davis and Tony Williams is 17 at the time I hear the record. He became my guy at that point. Two years after I hear that, I get this opportunity to play with Miles Davis. I wow. do this. I do this record. I'm telling you, just true. I do this record, and I'm uh, at this point now at 19. I'm I'm in college in my well, freshman year, or whatever. And but I'm going to art school. And and in October, the, the Bitches Brew was was recorded 24 hours after Jimi Hendrix played the last note at Woodstock in Cincinnati. Hmm. So now, in October of 69, I wake up out of a dead sleep, and I sit up in my bed and say, ah, I recorded with Miles Davis. It took me that long to grasp the fact what that- What just happened. Yeah, because now it's documented. Now I've done something that's documented that's going to be heard for the rest of my life and whoever else's life is still alive, you know, because- it's been documented. I'm like, wow. It's not something that, you know, oh, I got an opportunity to play. I sat in with Miles Davis at a jam session or something right, like that. Right, no, right. this is documented. And I, as a kid, I used to write my name on the back of album covers so I could see how it looked, right? So anyway, now I get this opportunity to play with Buddy Montgomery, who uh, is Wes Montgomery's brother. He was a great pianist and vibes player. And now, Joyce Cables and Clint Houston, who I played with, with the Jazz Samaritans, got the call too. So now I'm like uh, getting ready to be 20 years old. And I'm in college, but I, I leave. But my mom and dad said, uh, listen, if you leave, you're going to be on your own because, you know, I was in school and they didn't want me to leave. And I said, no, I got to go with my calling. I, I'm a musician. I got to go. I got to do this. So I left. So I go out on the road and I fly from New York to Milwaukee, where Buddy Montgomery is. And so Clint, George, Buddy, myself, drive from Milwaukee to Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm in the back seat of a Camaro. And the experience of going, I've never been on the road before. The experience of going across the country in the back seat of a Camaro is unprecedented for me. Anyway, we get to, I'm trying to make it short as I can. No, we, we, we got I'm, we got all <laughs> the time in the world. So we get to uh, uh, Vancouver and there's a newspaper strike. So, there's no advertisement that we're at the club. So nobody comes to the club. So now we have no money. So we have to sneak out of the hotel. And we're going to drive to uh, San Francisco. So, you know, we pull the car around the back of the alley, open the window and throw the suitcases out of the, the window. And 
you know, catch them and put them in the car so we can leave. So, so we get to San Francisco, and Buddy has some uh, has a friend who has a house, so we have some place to stay. But I mean, we've been compromised because we don't have any money because we didn't make any money at the club because the newspaper strike, nobody showed up at the club. Right. So we're in San Francisco, and I'm just leisurely walking down Geary Street, and there's a record store that's about to close. It's about 6 o'clock. The record store is about to close, and in the window of the record store, it says it has a little advertisement, handwritten, New Miles Davis out. So I go to the window, and I knock on the window. And I see the guys getting ready to close down. And I say, through the glass, I say, please, can you just show me the album cover? Because I wanted to see the album. I mean, I wanted to see my name on an album. Right. So the guy takes the album cover. And you know, like it's a double cover. So uh -huh. takes it. And he holds the album cover up to the glass. And I'm totally freaking out. Because you know that album cover is one of the greatest album covers of yeah. all. Yeah. I'm freaking out, going, like, wow, wow. And so I, I asked myself, I said, can you please turn the album around so that I could see the credits? And if you look at the credits on Bitches Brew, it says Miles Davis trumpet, Wayne Shorter saxophone, Lenny White drums. I'm the third guy, and then everybody else is after that. I'm totally freaking out, man. I'm telling you, it was... Uh, out of body experience. Were you yelling at the guy saying, "That's I me"? Was, yes, I did. I did, and I'm freaking out. I'm going like, "Oh my, I can't believe it!" Ah, oh, wow, wow. Anyway, so that was in San Francisco. That was cool. So now we got an opportunity to go to L.A. to make a record, and and the musicians' union was going to uh, the musicians' credit union. Buddy talked with him, and that's how we were going to get tickets back home is we go make this recording and we could get take so we made a recording with uh with blues uh violin sugarcane harris and oh, so you were just like bartering for <clears throat> to get home yeah. to get home so now i'm in la and buddy also had a friend who had a house that george and uh clint and i could stay in so we, it was a very nice house in the wilshire district so and I look in the paper, and who's playing at Shelley's Manhole but Miles Davis? I said, okay, I got to go. So I had no money to get to Shelley's. So I walked from uh, where I was to Shelley's Manhole. And I don't know how I'm going to get in because I have no money. So I'm standing outside, and then they took a break, and then everybody comes out. And I saw Dijonette outside. I said, hey, Jack. He said, hey, man, what's going on? What you doing here? I said, I'm stranded. I'm stranded here in L.A. <laughs> he said, really, does Miles know you're here? I said, no. He says, man, come on, come on. So I go inside, and I see Miles. He says, hey, what you doing out here? I said, I'm stranded out here. So he reaches in his pocket, and he gives me 20 bucks. And I said, oh, man, thanks, thank you. He said, yeah, don't worry, blah, blah, blah. So George, Clint, and I ate for a whole week on this $20. But it got us, got us through. So we make right. the record, and I fly back home to New York. And my mom and dad, because of the fact that all I've been through, they accepted me back to, 
to live at home. Right. You know? And, and you know, I got $20 and I went over to Miles' house and knocked on the door. He said, hey, come on in, you know. And Because we actually were listening to uh, the uh, the takes of uh, Bitches Group. He invited me over there. So I would go listen and I gave him his $20 back, you know. And we'd sit and listen to the music and, you know, uh, it was great, I mean, to do that. And so after that, I kind of got a little bit of recognition, you know, people. Mm-hmm. And and uh, Freddie Hubbard gave me a call. And he said, hey, uh, can you make a record date? Now, this is Freddie Hubbard calling me. Now, this is, I, I did this record with Miles Davis, and Freddie Hubbard's calling me now. And I'm going like, uh, sure. Yeah, I'll be there. Yeah, and, and I said, who's on it? He said, uh, Ron Carter, Herbie Hancock, and Joe Henderson. Now, on the phone, I said, oh, wow, yeah, cool, sure, no problem. But in actuality, inside me, I'm freaking out, screaming, going like, are you kidding me? Uh, uh, and I said, yeah, sure, sure. So he says, yeah, something Rudy Van Gelder's, uh, but Inglewood Cliffs. I said, okay. So uh, a friend of mine took me from Queens over to uh, Rudy Van Gelder's, and I go to Rudy Van Gelder's. Now, Rudy Van Gelder's for me is Hollywood ground because Imperial Isles, which is one of my favorite records of all time, was done there, and also A Love Supreme. Mm-hmm. Was done there. Aside from all the other records that were done there, so it's and this is so great, man. I'm like, wow, man. Now I've got my second opportunity to play with musicians that I listened to all my life, that I idolize, and I'm going to be able to play with them. So now I had this metal bass drum that was made from an oil drum, an actual oil drum that used to, you know, you put oil in, mm-hmm. and. It was great. I used it on Bitches Brew. Uh, I had bought it from a guy who made it. Actually, Elvin Jones wanted it. I got it before he, I bought it before he got it. So, um, you know, it was, for me, it was a special thing. So I go and set my drums up and I hit the bass drum. And Ron Carter says, no, 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 man. You can't use that drum. And I said, why? Is it because it's too resonant and you won't hear any bass? So Rudy goes in the back and pulls out this 28-inch bass drum that had a painting of a moonlit lake on the front of it. And it sounded like cardboard. (laughs) So I'm freaking out. I said, I got this opportunity to play with all these masters that I listen to. I can't even use my drums, and I got to use this drum. I mean, this bass drum that sounds like crap. So I make this record and it becomes a huge hit, but I couldn't listen to it because I I heard, I, I didn't like the way it sounded and I heard all my mistakes. Uh. But then everybody's saying to me, wow, man, you record, man, you sound great on that record, man. And I'm going like, oh, geez, wow, please. I don't know. You know. But <clears throat> it was a traumatic experience for me because of the fact that Again, I wanted to play my drums, and you know, but I couldn't because... Of, anyway, Rudy Van Gilder, who just recently passed, 
said that that was one of his favorite recordings. Really? I, I couldn't believe it, man. Of course. <laughs> okay, so now, after that record, Joe Henderson calls me and says, listen, um, I want you to play in my band. I said, sure, great. So <clears throat> um, I play in a band that Joe Henderson puts together that has Woody Shaw again on trumpet, uh, George Cables on piano, and Reggie Johnson on bass. So we play, you know, we do a few gigs around and, you know, it's great. And then, and then Reggie Johnson decides that he wants to leave and go to uh, L.A. and do studio sessions. So now we need a bass player. Okay. So I happened to be in the city one night at, and I went down to Slug's Saloon down in Alphabet City here in New York City. And Horace Silver's playing. And I go in and I'm listening and there's this bass player that is absolutely killing it. It's like, whoa, man. So when the set was over, he came to the bar. I was sitting at the bar and I said, hey, listen, man, you sound fantastic. Uh, Joe Henderson needs a bass player. Here's his number. Give him a call. And the bass player was Stanley Clark. Oh, wow. So now Stanley Clark joins Joe Henderson. So Stanley Clark and I are playing with Joe Henderson. And now we play for about 18 months. And then Freddie Hubbard calls me and says, hey, man, I want you to come play with me. So I go play with Freddie along with George. George leaves and goes to play with Freddie. So it's now Freddie, uh, Junior Cook, uh, George Cables, and I think at that point, Alex Blake was playing bass. So now Joe Henderson doesn't have a piano player, and a, uh, he needs a piano player. So Chick Corea comes and plays with Joe Henderson along with Stanley Clark. So I'm playing with Freddie, and Chick and Stanley are playing with Joe Henderson. So Chick and Stanley leave Joe Henderson and go play with Stan Getz. Okay. And Tony Williams comes and plays with Stan Getz with Chick and Stanley. So while I'm playing with Freddie Herbert, I get a call from uh, Coke Escovito, who's Pete Escovito's brother, Sheila, uh, and uh, Pete Escovito is Sheila Escovito's father. So they said, listen, we're starting a band and we would like for you to be in this band. Now they're in San Francisco. So I'm thinking about it. I said, yeah, okay, sure. So Stanley and Chick are playing with, with um, Stan Getz and they decide to leave Stan Getz and form Return to Forever with Flora Broome, uh, Ayerto and Joe Farrell. So they do Return to Forever. And they do uh, the Light, I mean, Return to Forever album and Light as a Feather. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm in San Francisco with this band called Azteca that has Paul Jackson, bass player, has. Um, Tom Harrell playing trumpet, Mel Martin playing saxophone, uh, and Neil Sean played guitar. Amongst, I mean, it was a 
big band. It had like what seventeen people. It was like uh, Santana meets Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Right. And uh, so I'm San Francisco doing that, I, and I record this record with with them. Now, the record that we recorded is on Columbia. Now, if in the book Hitman which talks about uh, Walter Yetnikoff and Clive Davis and Bruce Lundwall about them being the different um, presidents at Columbia Records and how that, that whole history was. Anyway, so now Clive Davis is signed to, I mean, Clive Davis is, is the president of um, Columbia Records. They sign Azteca and we have a convention in a CBS convention in London at the Grosvenor House Hotel. And in the book, it says that Clive Davis is going to unveil a new band at midnight during this convention. The new band that he unveiled was Azteca, and I was in that band. Mm. So... Here I am now in this big so-called like rock band, kind of like Santana meets Blood, Twit, and Tears. So I'm in San Francisco, and Chick gives me a call. He's in Japan with Return to Forever. He says, listen, Ayerto has to go back to New York, and the band is kind of disbanding, but Stanley and I are coming to San Francisco would you play a week with us at the Keystone Corner? I said, sure. You know, I played with Stanley. You know, we would been friends forever. And I played with Chick on Bishop's Brew. So I learned this music that they have. And we play a week uh, at the Keystone Corner. And it's amazing. It really was a great week. Great week. At the last uh, day on Sunday... Two guitar players sit in with uh, the trio. And it was Barry Finnerty. They, they both lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm -hmm. Barry Finnerty played guitar and Billy Connors played guitar. So at the end of the night, Chick says, listen, I want to start an electric return to forever. And I would love for you to be in the band. Are you into it? And I said, well, Chick, I'm out here with this band, Azteca, and I think I'm going to stay out here and do this. He said, oh, okay. So they went back to New York, and they got Steve Gadd to play. I stayed in San Francisco. Right. And while this time I'm in San Francisco, there's a little break here, and this manager comes up to me, and he says, listen, man, I would you be into like having a jam session with two guys that, you know, we're trying to start this band and, and would you be into it? I said, yeah, sure. And the, the guys were Neil Sean and Ross Valerie. So I go and play with them and they, they love it. They say, man, we want to start this new band and we really want you to be in it. Please, would you, would you do this? I mean, because Greg Rowley's going to play uh, keys. Now, mm -hmm. I've known, I know all these guys from Santana because 
I've been out in San Francisco. Mike Shreve and I are real good friends. And so, you know, I know everybody. Right. So in this time, Chick calls me again and says, hey, man, please come <laughs> on back and be a part of this band. I said, OK, all right, I'm going to do that. So I'm going to go back and play with Return to Forever, the electric Return to Forever. But this band that wants me to be a part of in San Francisco is Journey. Oh. This is before Ainsley Dunbar. So I say, well, no, guys, I'm going to go back and play Return to Forever. So I was the first drummer in Journey. That's how I got to return to forever. Wow. That I would have, I mean, obviously I wouldn't know that whole story, but I would have never, I would have never guessed it that way or happening that way. That's amazing. No, I wouldn't have either. Right. <laughs> you know, but that's, that's how I got to be in return to forever. <laughs> wow. I love that story. So I, there are, I mean, I have so many questions. I want to be cognizant of your time too. Uh, with with bitches brew, there's a couple questions I have about that. One is just what it was like working with Miles and what what that vibe was because I'm guessing the vibe for that record was different than a lot of other records, and it, because it was such a an experimental album and 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 so it was so new at the time for the stuff that you guys were doing. Yes, it it really was. Um, you know, I was scared. I was a deer in the headlights. Really, right? I mean, you know, <clears throat> this is my first experience at uh, a real professional recording, and it was with iconic people. It was, you know, like Miles Davis, Wayne Shorter, Chick Corea, Joe Zawinu, you know, Jack DeJanette. I mean, these are people that I've been listening to on records, man. Sure. And so, like, I'm freaking out, you know, but. I'm trying to hold my own, you know, and it was, you know, to have 13, 14 people in the studio at the same time and for them to come in and have a, a joint uh, uh, collective consciousness was really, really special because it could have sounded like, you know, if everybody's egos were uh, um, brimming over and everybody trying to get their space, it could have sounded like a cacophony. Yeah, you know, but, like tennis shoes but, in the dryer. Yeah, but 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 my I had done things with two drummers before, so like, you know, I was cognizant of, of how to make that work. And my concept was I wanted to wanted to sound like one guy that had eight arms. And you know, the only direction that Miles gave me was that he said, "Look," and, and this is really weird because. When the album came out, it was called Bitches Brew. Is like he said, like, think of this like as a big stew, a pot, right? And I want you to be a spice that you put in there. So you know, like, do whatever you want to do. Hmm. Jack will play a rhythm, and I want you to play all around it. And it was really special stuff, man. And and uh. It, if you listen to that record, it's, it's and and probably uh, from a jazz perspective, it was the first album that was a multi-track album with editing and splicing 
was done. Because yeah. when I listened to, when I went over to Miles' house and listened to the outtakes and, and the, the tracks themselves without editing, without effects on it, it sounded one way. But when the album came out and I heard it for the first time, it sounded totally different. They had gone in and reconstructed things and put the bridge where the introduction was, took out a bridge here. It was totally reconstructed. It was amazing that that what it sounded like after we had done it. Right. You know? um, because Miles, we, we were all set up in like a semicircle and we'd start a groove and Miles would point to John McLaughlin and he would play, and then Miles would stop him, and we would stop. And then he, we started the groove again. He pointed to Wayne, and Wayne would play. And then, like they spliced it all together to make it sound like it was, you know, it was amazing after I had to listen to it. You know? Right, especially at the time, you know, it's it was it's never really been done before, which is oh yeah, no, no, it was, it was kind of it was deep, man. You know, I mean, I wouldn't have gotten up that that record and. Red Clay. And this is why, I mean, you know, like sometimes, you know, guys will get upset because uh, they don't get recognition that they think that they deserve. I don't feel that way at all. Because those two records, the reason why I got those two records was because of Tony Williams. Tony hmm. Williams, Tony Williams didn't play with Miles because he was not going to do that. And he, and Freddie Hubbard called Tony to play on uh, Red Clay. And Tony said, no, call Lenny White. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, and you've, you're often noted as one of the forefathers of jazz fusion. And, you know, how, how did you develop that? I mean, that's like, that was like your own thing. It was like a thing that you just developed. But it wasn't like, all, a, like I can be a rock play. drummer. Yeah, no, I know, but we all played from Tony. Tony was the guy. Tony, for me, he's the guy who actually invented fusion. I was going to ask, would you consider him a fusion drummer? No, he's 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 the guy. See, Tony was when I when I heard Tony Williams, every drummer that I heard before him, I heard in him, but I heard in him the new way drumming was going to sound. It was amazing, man, to, to for this young guy to have all the knowledge of what the tradition was and then for him to add new things to drum nomenclature that I had never heard before. See, for, for me, jazz drumming um, comes from the Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven are Kenny Clark, Art Blakey, Max Roach, Philly Joe Jones, Elvin Jones, Roy Haynes, and Tony Williams. For me, that's modern jazz drumming. And when I heard Tony Williams, I heard all those other guys, but I heard in him the new way to play what they had played. Right. And so when Tony had Lifetime, 
it was an organ trio, which is a really standard jazz organ trio, but it was an organ trio on steroids. It was like unlike anything I had ever heard before. Yeah. And it really messed everybody up. So everybody was trying to play like Tony Williams. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it it was it. I mean, if, if you were not playing like Tony Williams, you, then you were playing like Elvin Jones. Those are the two schools. It was the Miles Davis School and the John Coltrane School mm -hmm. coming up as a young kid in New York City. And so, you know, when playing with Miles Davis, I got an opportunity to play with Miles Davis. I, of course, Tony Williams is the guy. Right, right. So for me, he is the the trendsetter, and and he was the guy that invented that direction for me because I had listened to Miles in the Sky at Phillies to Kilimanjaro, where you know Miles had started to go in a different direction, mm -hmm. and you know I mean like there was the the the. Um, Jimi Hendrix in infusion also. Jimi Hendrix, Sly Stone, and Mars had started to listen to to both their musical directions. And you know, and you know after the fact, like after Bitches Brew had come out, um I was playing in a club one night with Bobby Moses, two drummers, and Steve Grossman and uh Dave Liebman, uh, George Cables, and uh, Calvin Hill was playing bass. And Miles came into the club, and during the break, he came up to me and said, do you want to play with Jimi Hendrix? <laughs> and, yes. you know, I'm, I'm in such, no, but I'm in such awe of Miles Davis. I said, nah, and I regret it today. Oh. But, but he had asked me to, because he was putting together a project uh, with Jimi Hendrix, he and he was listening to people recruiting people for Jimi. Man, well, <laughs> spilt milk, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just, uh, I'm, and I'm sure that you've seen this, or maybe you haven't, or maybe it's not even true. But there's a, a an old CBS memorandum that's yes. floating around, the one about bitches brew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Pretty, for the people who don't know, it just says. Miles just called and said he wants to he wants the this album to be titled quote bitches brew and then it just says please advise. <laughs> yeah. No, you don't understand when people <laughs> when the record came out people said, "Yeah, I heard you record with Miles Davis." I said, "Yeah." He said, "What's the name of the album?" I said, "Bitches brew." He said, "Oh, Witches brew." I said, "No, no, no. Bitches brew." You mean Witches brew? I said, "No, bitches brew." <laughs> they people couldn't believe it. You know, right? <laughs> I just think it's a funny memorandum. That's oh yeah. That's yeah. Out there. So let's talk about. I, I know you you had mentioned uh, you know that you have all of this all of this stuff currently going on, and I want to get into that. I want to talk about. I want to talk about some records that you have coming out now, or that have recently been released, and things that you're working on now as well. Yeah. So uh, I'll let you. I'll let you sort of. Tell me what you told me earlier about the the records that you have coming out. Well, um, we have a, a a project that I did with a 
a great Italian, uh, a Neapolitan singer uh, by the name of Letizia Gambi. We're, we're putting it up for uh, Grammy consideration right now. And uh, Ron Carter played on it, uh, Dave Stryker, uh, Helen Song, you know, uh, it's a really great record. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of diversify a lot. And I take on challenges. And um, when she asked me uh, a couple of years ago to be involved in another project that I did with her, the concept was to take Neapolitan music and kind of uh, fuse it with uh, jazz music. And so we would take um, songs that were great Neapolitan songs and, you know, kind of give a jazz slant to it and it worked out very well so this is the second record that I've done with her um, that, and you know we've taken we've taken the, some traditional Neapolitan songs and some you know kind of pop songs and did some different arrangements with it but it's a very good record and so we're putting that up for uh, Grammy consideration now uh, I just finished uh, a great record with uh, Wallace Roney and Wallace Roney Sextet with Patrice Russian, Buster Williams, uh, Gary Bartz, and a young saxophonist by the name of uh, Ben Solomon. That's a really special record. And there's uh, an album that I also did with Wallace with that is some music that Wayne Shorter wrote back in 1966 for the Miles Davis Quintet for Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, Tony Williams, and Miles. It's kind of like a trumpet concerto, and it's music that has never been heard before. And he lost the, the transcripts, but, um, and when the band broke up, he had put the transcripts away and he, lost them and then after Miles had done uh, the Montreux uh, record with uh, the Gil Evans arrangements mm -hmm. uh, Miles called Wayne and asked him did he have that music because he wanted to try maybe to do it again and then Miles died right? and, and so the music didn't get done and then in 2006 Wayne found the music again and called Wallace and said, this is, you're the only one that can really make this music happen. So uh, he gave it to Wallace. So it's taken 10 years to get done. Wow. And so now we just finished it. And it's absolutely amazing. Wayne Shorter is one of the greatest composers of the 20th century. And this is going to definitely solidify that. It's pretty amazing music. And when does that come out? Well, uh, sometime next year. Awesome. And then I did a, a record with a recorder player. And it sounds really strange, but he is absolutely killing. And he's a great jazz musician. And it's unique, but it's special, really special. Um, and that should come out uh, sometime early next year, too. So you've been busy. Yeah, and and I also uh, was involved with a pop band too, by the name of Big Head Babies. 
Oh, I, th- I saw something about that on your on your Facebook page, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're pretty interesting. <laughs> it's pop music, but it's got a different slant on it. And I think their concept is they're not going to release a CD. They're going to release a bunch of singles. Right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so, it's, so it's episodic music as opposed to it being, you know, uh, just releasing a CD. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, so uh, it's, it's, it's cool. And and there's some new other things that I'm getting involved with. Too. I'm going to actually, uh, I went and saw my dear friend play last night, Stanley, and I'm going to be involved in co-producing his next record, too. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So, And you also teach, too, right? Yeah, I'm teaching at NYU. You're a busy man. Yeah, you gotta be busy. Yeah, man. I agree. I like being busy. So, yeah. but are you? You don't teach privately, though, right? Yeah, I do. Oh, you I do. do. So, mm-hmm. if if people wanted to study with you or, or get in touch with you regarding lessons or anything like that, what would be the best way to do it? Well, uh, probably call me. <laughs> but I don't give my number out. But I, I could, I could, I could give you some information for that. Okay. okay. Yeah, and do that. That'll work. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I would love to. I mean, this we've already gone an hour and fifteen, and I would love to have you longer. So maybe we could do a part two at some point or something like that. Because I want to. We never, we didn't really get into, you know, practicing and approaches and 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 different conceptual ideas that I would love to get your your feedback and input on. So. Uh, but I want to be respectful of your time now and thank you for, for doing this, spending this much time with me and, uh, telling, no telling these amazing stories. And if you're ever up for a part two of this, uh, it would be, it would be great to do that too. I am. You, you just let me know when we could do it. Awesome. Awesome. Sure. I'll, uh, I'll reach out and we'll definitely line it up very soon. So, uh, Lenny, again, thank you so much for spending this time with me and for the stories and and for being willing to come on here and and talk for this long i appreciate it thanks nick absolutely i'll be in touch soon okay all right right. thanks Bye -bye. Bye. bye and there you have it the one and only lenny white telling his perspective of how his amazing career has happened over the past few decades and for more information and to get all the links and everything that we talked about, head over to drummersresource.com forward slash session 214 and also leave your comments on there. I would love to hear what you thought of the interview, things that you want to debate, uh, you want to say hello, your your messages of undying love for the podcast, whatever you want to do. Leave your comments, drummersresource.com forward slash session 214. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.